All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today is a mock draft and mailbag Monday where I will be looking at a recent mock draft as well as answering your listener questions. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. been covering the Falcons for many years, formerly at Falcfans.com. RIP, still going strong on Twitter at Falcfans. And, of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. And today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your next order. So today's episode is a mock draft Monday, a mailbag Monday, and the mailbag portion of the show, uh, as we get further along in today's episode, we'll be answering some interesting listener questions. We got one early in the show about voidable years and contracts and sort of how that factors into contract restructurings. Later in the episode, we're going to get into whether or not drafting quarterbacks consistently year after year on day two of the NFL draft is a viable long-term strategy to finding a potential heir apparent to Matt Ryan, as well as why aren't we talking about the possibility of re-signing Todd Gurley, despite the fact that he is a very good scheme fit in the type of offense that Arthur Smith is expected to bring to Atlanta. Normally on these mock draft Mondays, we start off talking about a recent mock draft at the draftnetwork.com. And today's going to be a little bit different. We'll sort of mention a recent mock from the draft network uh, in passing, but the topic I want to get into is more about sort of the juggling act, I guess you could say, that the Falcons and or Panthers may be doing this offseason in order to go get their quarterback, especially in light of Trey Lance, the North Dakota State quarterback's recent pro day in which he shined and sort of how that will play into the conversation about which quarterback or possibly both quarterbacks could find their ways uh, to the NFC South this offseason. But before we get into the mock draft Monday portion. We got to up you update you guys on this weekend's uh, Falcons news. And that was Jake Matthews restructuring his contract. So that's where we'll start things off on today's episode. The Falcons saved $7.95 million, according to various reports against this year's salary cap by restructuring Jake Matthews contract. They did a max restructure, which we've broken down on previous episodes of the podcast. You go to look at it. Go and listen to the February 17th episode to get the exact details of a salary cap 101. But the Falcons essentially were able to pull that off by lowering Jake Matthews' $13 million base salary to a league minimum of $1.075 million and converting the difference into signing bonus, which was then spread out over the final three years of Jake Matthews' contracts. This is probably the first of several moves that the Falcons will have to make before Wednesday's March 17th deadline, not only the deadline that marks the start in which free agency officially kicks off, but also the start when teams have to be compliant to get under this year's $182.5 million salary cap. Of course, today, as many of you are listening to this, is the start of the legal tampering period where you will start to see teams talk to other uh teams, free agents, and potentially get some deals done uh, sooner rather than later before that Wednesday uh, deadline. But 
you know, depending on where you look at for the Falcons, how much cap space they have left, you know, depends on your source. Overthecap.com has the Falcons with about $10 million over. The NFLPA has the Falcons at $17.6 million, which I don't think includes the Jake Matthews restructure. So if you take the seven, the nearly $8 million, you're roughly around that $10 million figure. Spotrack has the Falcons at a little more than $8 million over. Uh, D. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has them around $6 million. So... There's still some moves that the Falcons will have to make, probably one or two more restructures at least, probably one or two more cuts between now and Wednesday. So we'll just have to sort of wait and see which players get the axe. But that does sort of bring us into our listener question of today on the subject of voidable years. One flew over to Falcons Nest at Mave 2124 asks, looking at Track, two voidable years have been added to Jake Matthews' contract. Do teams have to negotiate that? If not, then can the team do that to Debo and Grady's deals? So in case you missed it, initial reports on Friday were that the Falcons saved roughly $8.6 million against this year's cap, according to Spotrack, because the Falcons restructured Jake's deal in a way by lowering his base salary and then adding voidable or dummy years to the back end of the deal. The way that this basically works in Jake's case is that they would take the $11.925 million and we'll round up to $12 million from this point on that they would take to lower his base salary convert that into signing bonus. And instead of spreading that over three years, they add two more voidable years. So they would spread it over five years. And I know some of you probably doing the math on that. And you're like, wait, wouldn't that mean that the Falcons would save roughly $9.5 million instead of $8.6 million if they added two voidable years on the back end. And yes, you would be correct. But the initial reporting was that the Falcons didn't lower his base salary from 13 million to the veteran minimum that they lowered it from 13 million to 2.25 million. So instead of spreading the, 11.925 million. They only spread the 10.75 million, but don't get caught up in the details to answer Mave 2124's question. You know, I don't know quite the answer. If teams have to negotiate that I've seen somewhere where it doesn't seem like they do, but I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I've just sort of seen it in passing that they don't necessarily have to do that when they attack on two dummy years, two voidable years in this hypothetical sense, like Jake Matthews. Um, I don't think they'll have to negotiate that. I think they just basically have to do like they do with the automatic conversion when they do these max restructures, which is just sort of submit it in writing to the player and say, we're doing this. And, uh, you know, they just have to sign off on it. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if they have to sign off on it, but I do think in the situation where you have like what the saints did with Taysom Hill on Sunday, where he got a four year, $140 million extension with all four of those years being voidable. Then I do think you would have to negotiate that. But if it's just simply, we're doing a simple restructure where we're just tacking on two years, two voidable years. And I don't think you would have to negotiate that, but I'm not 100% sure on that. So to illustrate how valuable the voidable years can be when it comes to freeing up cap space, if the Falcons, for example, with Grady, Jared, and Deion Jones, the two most likely candidates in my eyes to get their contracts restructured over the next 48 hours, with Grady, Jared, if you did a quote-unquote normal max restructure, you would save about $6.25 million this year, which is a significant number, and according to some people, would probably get the Falcons under the salary cap. But if you were to add two dummy years onto that, you would save roughly $9.4 million, or you'd save about $3.1275 million more. With Deion Jones, a regular restructure would be about $4.807 million in savings. But if you added two dummy years, you would save about 
$5.768 million. So you'd save about $961,000 more. So in the case of Grady Jerry, it does kind of make more sense to do the voidable thing, particularly in his case, because 2022 is the final year of his contract. And you're probably in a situation where ideally, if you're the Falcons, you want to do a restructure with Grady Jarrett this year. And then next year you can basically then do a contract extension with him. And so doing the voidable thing is not as big a deterrent because you already know you're going to give him a, a new deal next year with Dion Jones. It's not as valuable because you're, you're saving roughly about veteran minimum for one player, which isn't going to be that valuable. The Falcons, obviously every little bit counts. And if you're in the mindset of, we will absolutely do everything in our power to not have to restructure Matt Ryan or Julio Jones's contracts at all costs. Then that $961,000 does come at, you know, to be valuable. But if you, if you know that you're going to sit there and you're going to wind up restructuring Matt Ryan's deal and saving yourself $5 million and trying to get, you know, geek out a little less than another million dollars is not that big a deal uh, in the Falcons case. So we'll sort of see how it all plays out for the Falcons. I do expect Grady Jarrett and Deion Jones to restructure in the next 48 hours. I wonder what we'll see see or hear about Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, and Dante Fowler in that same period of time. I think at least one of those, we'll, we'll find something about Dante Fowler, but it might be all quiet on the Matt Ryan and Julio Jones front, at least as far as contract restructures go. But we'll see how that plays out, guys, and we'll see how I think the top of the draft could play out with possibly quarterbacks going one, two, three, four in the draft and sort of what kind of long-term ramifications, particularly if the Carolina Panthers are one of those teams picking that high in the draft. And we'll get into that discussion coming up on today's episode. But before we get there, guys, I want to let you know that bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. The NFL might be over, but the NBA college basketball, NHL, NASCAR, and FCS college football are all in full swing. Bet online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV, get real time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine because bet online has you covered for all the news scores and odds. It's the best way to place your bets and it's free to sign up, head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today at betonline.ag. Use the promo code Locked on to receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, sign up today at betonline.ag. Use the promo code locked on to receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. So March Madness is here, and that means bracket challenges. Join our locked on listener bracket challenge group on ESPN. Submit your March Madness picks. Beat your favorite hosts. And if you win, you will get a guest appearance on locked on today, our daily news podcast. The link to join is in the show notes of this episode. Get your picks in today. So I don't have, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I don't have a specific mock draft that I do want to talk about, although I will give a shout out to Jordan Reed over at the draft network who had the Falcons taking Penny Sewell with the number four overall pick in his most recent mock draft this past week. But in light of the Trey Lance pro day on Friday, I kind of want to talk about a scenario that I could definitely see playing out. And I kind of tweeted about this on Friday, but I also think, you know, the potential dance that the Falcons and Panthers do at the top of the draft could be one that's very compelling and interesting. We all know that the Panthers want to move up and get a quarterback this offseason, and short of the Houston Texans changing their mind over the next six weeks and trading them Deshaun Watson, it seems very likely that the Panthers will do their damnness to move up at some point from the eighth overall selection and try to get a quarterback and make sure that they can get one. And without getting too much into the details of it, you know, it seems like a trade from eight to three with Miami makes the most sense for Carolina. 
And of course, Jordan also had such a trade in his most recent mock draft. But what I find interesting is which quarterback would the Panthers jump up for? Because again, I'm assuming like everybody else is assuming that at this point, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson will be the first two picks in the draft. Now, maybe that doesn't happen, but it seems like all signs are pointing in that direction, which would leave the Panthers and Falcons, presumably, to decide between Trey Lance and Justin Fields. And, you know, this gets into the sort of conversation on whether or not the Falcons could potentially move up in the draft to secure the guy if they had a strong preference in that regard, if they wanted to take a quarterback uh, this high in the draft. And I've said before, given the powers that be that run the Falcons front office. I do think they would probably prefer fields based off of the fact that Terry Fontenot, Dwayne Jones and Kyle Smith all come from organizations in new Orleans, Baltimore and Washington respectively that had a tended to put a big premium on big school products. Not to mention the fact that fields is a local guy and the marketability is an absolute slam dunk for Arthur blank and rich McKay and all those people on the business side of the organization. Now, In the past, I've expressed my hesitance, my skepticism a little bit on whether or not the Falcons would similarly fawn all over Trey Lance in the same way if he was available for them to pick at four. But I do, in recent weeks, I have tended to lean a little bit more that the Falcons would wouldn't mind settling for Trey Lance, if if we can call it that, based off of all the things I've heard over the last couple of weeks about sort of Lance's intangibles and whatnot. And... I think what will be interesting is how the Panthers figure into this because who would they like? And I'm starting to think, and again, it's it's maybe just based, based off of, again, in the similar way I'm talking about who I think the Falcons would prefer, very circumstantial evidence. But I do wonder if they would prefer Trey Lance in a lot of ways to play uh, in that Joe Brady style of offense. I wonder if they would be a lot more attracted to Trey Lance because he comes from a more pro-style system from North Dakota State which goes back to a listener question I had a couple of weeks ago where someone basically indicated that Trey Lance was much more of a project because he comes from a smaller school. And I was skeptical then and and remain skeptical that that is not necessarily the narrative that is the reality of the situation that I think particularly between Lance and fields that you can make a very easy argument that Lance is the more pro ready of the guys just because, you know, North Dakota state's program asks what they ask their quarterbacks to do, you know, working under center, making calls, making protections and whatnot at the line of scrimmage, you know, that has a lot more pro elements into their offense. You know, for those of people that are unfamiliar with North Dakota state, they're kind of like the Alabama of the FCS program where they've won multiple national titles over the last several years, uh, including one under Trey Lance, including one under Carson Wentz. And I think they won like two before Carson Wentz took over the quarterback position. Unfortunately, only Easton stick. I don't think has a, a national, no Easton stick might have a national title. It's like they've won some like ridiculous, like five out of the last six national titles or something like that in the FCS or something, something ridiculous like that. Maybe not five out of six, but like five out of the last like 10 or something like that. So, You know, and then you couple that with the rumblings that you hear about fields that maybe some NFL teams may be a little bit lower on him than at least the people on draft Twitter are, where you will find many people vocally proclaiming Justin Fields to be QB2 um, and clearly better players, better prospect than guys like Wilson and Lance. But you sort of hear those knocks around fields like him being a one read quarterback and whatnot. And, you know, I think it's legitimate to criticize Justin Fields maybe being a little bit slower to process things than other quarterbacks in this draft class 
are. I've talked about that on the pro on the program before others have talked on the, uh, on this podcast about that thing, but I've also heard other people talk about it. And I, I, I agree somewhat again, I haven't done a deep, deep dive into Ohio state's offense, but from what I, little I have seen of it, I do think there is a tendency within that offense to ask for their receivers to run longer, more routes that take a little bit more time to develop and you don't have as many of those sort of quick hitters and checkdowns that you see in a lot of other offenses and especially in NFL. And so I do think maybe that knock on, on fields that he tends to take a little bit more time than others do is more a product of the system that they run than necessarily, Oh, he's just slow to process. But again, well, you know, I haven't done my deep, deep dive on those guys. So I might have a different opinion as we get closer to the draft. But I also think the fact that goes in fields favor is, you know, to supplement that, you will probably see whatever team that drafts him do a better job than Ohio State really did, which is trying to supplement that, you know, make him speed up his process by being a one-read quarterback and basically asking him, okay, if the first read isn't there, then be prepared to run, right? And I think NFL teams will take far more advantage of that than some maybe Ohio State did this past year, where Ohio State really – at least from what I have seen, was not really interested in asking Fields to use his legs to make plays. I think NFL teams are going to definitely take advantage of that because I think that's a, 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 a significant, as, as they call it, force multiplier when it comes to offense. But let's not get too deep into that conversation on today's episode. We still have six-plus weeks to explore those topics. But I do wonder if the Panthers would potentially – prefer Lance over fields and the Falcons could presumably stay put at four and still get the guy that I think is probably their preferred option, which is Justin Fields. And we'll just sort of see how that plays out. And, you know, maybe I could have it wrong and the the Panthers prefer fields and the Falcons wouldn't have again, a problem settling for Lance at four. But I do think what's interesting. And I tweeted it out Friday is that should both teams land their quarterbacks of the future, both teams land their guy regardless of who goes where those two players are going to inevitably be linked for the rest of their careers as they go head to head for years to come. And should one turn out clearly better than the other player, then it's going to sting a little bit more for the other team and their fan base having to see that player multiple times per year. And so for me, I just, I find it fascinating because I always kind of thought the Falcon fans took the Ryan versus Flacco feud a little bit too hard um, and I, you know, I look at the Trey Young, Luka Doncic, a few, you know, and I feel like some Hawks fans, not all, but some Hawks fans probably take it a little bit to unnecessary levels. So I say that because if you had a similar situation of Justin Fields versus Trey Lance and one place for Atlanta and one place for Carolina, I, I would imagine you would have a very similar dynamic. And I, I just think that would be a very interesting and compelling storyline. And I, I can imagine doing podcasts three years from now being like, guys, you got to let this, this Trey Lance versus Justin Fields. They go like, it's not that big a deal. It's only, it's only an issue for, you know, two weeks out of the year. You don't have to, every time someone praises one, it is not a slight at the other, but I know how fans are. So I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. So, you know, to me, the, the stories are, are very interesting and the various narratives are, are always fascinating to me. So I will be curious if we see something similar to that happening, uh, you know, several months from now. So um, that's all I have to say about that. And uh, we will sort of answer a couple more listener questions, including whether or not 
you know, the Falcons should pass on a quarterback like Trey Lance or Justin Fields at the top of the draft and just, you know, invest in day two quarterbacks. And if they were to do that over multiple years, would that lead to success comparable to success than just drafting one of those guys in the first round? So we're going to answer that question coming up on today's podcast. But before we get there, it is March, which means March Madness Bracketology. So it's time to find out which Built Bar is the best flavor. All month long, Built Bar is unveiling their bracket for the best flavor with daily matchups between the top flavors. And you can pick yours at BuiltBar.com. In case you missed it, Built Bar are the best tasting protein bar on the market. They're not just tasty. They're healthy, too. They're low in sugar, low in calories, high in protein, high in fiber. Build your own bracket or vote for your favorites by heading over to BuiltBar.com. And make sure you use the promo code LOCKED15 to get 15% off your next order. Make sure you get in on the action now that the Sweet 16 matchups are here. So go pick your favorites at BuiltBar.com. And when you do, make sure you use the promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. So make sure you are checking out the Locked On NFL podcast every Monday. Catch up on the latest weekend news, moves, trades, and more during this busy time of the offseason. Subscribe to the Locked On NFL podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So our first question comes from Brian S. Connolly at the Real BS Connolly on Twitter. He asks, given two premises, one, a quarterback is the most important position, and two, the draft is a kind of a crapshoot for finding franchise quarterbacks would a viable alternate route for finding Matt Ryan's heir to be draft a day two quarterback in each of the next two to three years, basically like buying more bingo cards instead of a single premium bingo card that has a few extra spaces. I'm not sure if this idea is so obviously foolish that no one discusses it or if it's a potential market inefficiency to exploit, but taking this approach with a big trade back could potentially give the draft capital to make this happen. Just an interesting thought experience. So I don't think it's foolish. But I think here's where it kind of breaks down based off of the data I have seen your chances of hitting on a day two quarterback, meaning that you're going to find a capable starter is around 15 to 20%. So let's say 20% just for the sake of argument. That means that you would have to use a day two pick on a quarterback for five, five years, five consecutive times before your odds would indicate that you would hit on one. Compare that to the normal hit rate of a day two pick. I've done research in the past that suggests that you can find a starter in round two about 40 to 45% of the time. In round three, that's around 25% of the time. So let's say overall on day two, both rounds included, that's about a 35% hit rate on a non-quarterback finding a starter. So that's not a huge difference, but over five years, on average, you're going to get about 1.75 starters. Not to mention that quarterback tends to be more of a zero-sum position, meaning that you either have a starter or you have a backup and you're not getting a lot of value out of your backup because he's not going to play very often. And so when you draft a backup player, if you quote unquote miss on a backup player at quarterback, it's less valuable to your team than it is at other positions. You know, in this instance, the 3.25 players that wind up not being starters at non-quarterback position that you draft over five years, you're probably going to get a lot more value out of a backup running back or a backup linebacker or a corner or pass rusher, et cetera, than you are as a backup quarterback. So strategically, it's hard to justify using premium picks on such a non-need position like quarterback. So this is why you've heard me say things in the past and during the season where I kind of talked about like drafting a quarterback after round one is kind of a waste of a pick. It just doesn't mathematically work out in your favor. Now, obviously, if you have a need at quarterback too, like the Falcons do currently, it's not necessarily a waste in that regard, but chances are you're just drafting a backup, right? And if you're drafting a player that is got a very high probability of being a backup versus having to draft a player that at least 
while the odds aren't necessarily super strong, given, as you mentioned, the crapshoot nature of it on a non-quarterback position, but at least there's a chance that you can draft a starter somewhere else. It just kind of doesn't balance out in your favor. So, you know, in practice, we've seen some teams in recent years try this strategy, right? The Steelers and Giants have done this from 2013 to 2018. Both teams used a series of third and fourth round picks on quarterbacks, three each. The Steelers drafted Landry Jones, Josh Dobbs, and Mason Rudolph. The Giants drafted Ryan Nassib, Davis Webb, and Kyle Oletta over that span, and zero out of six turned into quality starters, right? So it kind of just boils down to an analogy of where if you're drafting a quarterback after round one, you're kind of swinging for a home run. And if you do happen to find a Derek Carr or Russell Wilson or Dak Prescott, that's going to be great and, and amazing for you. But otherwise, the chances are very high that you're going to strike out. Right. And instead, if you go in the non-quarterback direction, you're probably not going to hit a home run again because of the lesser positional value. But you can probably hit a triple. That's probably where you're you're going for. And the chances are that even if you don't hit that triple, you're still going to probably hit a single or a double. So you're less likely to strike out because, again, the value that a backup non-quarterback gives you versus what a backup quarterback gives you. So. You know, I think that strategy tends to work better if you're a stable organization like the Steelers have been. And you typically have a, a quarterback like the Steelers had that, you know, when I think when they started that strategy, Ben, ben Roethlisberger was around 32, 33 years old when they started doing that. And I think it makes sense at, around that point in, the, in your starting quarterback's time where you can sort of have a little bit more of a runway to find his replacement. And so, therefore, you can invest multiple picks at the quarterback position over multiple years. And if you know you're a perennial playoff team, it makes sense. But I don't know if that really works in the Falcons' favors right now, given that Matt Ryan's 36. And, you know, I think the time for the Falcons to adopt the strategy probably was like four or five years ago. So, you know, I think in the case of the Falcons, let's say instead of taking someone in round one, they wait until day two or round four of the draft. They take someone like Stanford's Davis Mills this year uh, in rounds three or four this year. And I think Mills is probably what you're you're probably looking at in that scenario is Mills is probably going to wind up being the quarterback too, behind whichever quarterback the Falcons eventually use a number one pick on further down the road, whether that's in 2022, 2023 or, or whenever. So I think that's why it's not a bad strategy, but I just don't think it's really a viable long-term option um, unless you have a stability at the starting quarterback position. And therefore you can, you know that you're going to go to the playoffs every single year. And so you know that you can be a little bit more risky with some of your draft picks because you know, it's not going to necessarily make or break your ability to, to win games year in and year out. So that's what I would say. Joshua W's question is, I know Ty Gurley was not at all what we had hoped for, but after listening to your episode where you break down potential running backs, I was wondering, do you think that he has a chance to stay in Atlanta since we are going back to his own running scheme? He really thrived under that scheme and Cutter kept trying to force a square peg into a round hole and it just didn't work out. Do you think there's any way we could get him cheap and he would do better in Atlanta now? Yeah, I mean, I talked about this, Joshua, back in January where I did my year in roster review series and broke down the running back position. And I do think it does make sense for the Falcons to potentially keep Gurley for the reasons that you mentioned. I do think he would be better in this offense than he was a year ago in the dirt cutter offense. Um, and frankly, I think, you know, the alternative, the options that the Falcons may have at the running back position, like saying, signing a player like Jamal Williams from the Green Bay Packers, you know, I don't think Williams is really bringing 
significantly anything different to the table than what you would expect from Todd Gurley at this point in his career. So I think really the main difference boils down to price, right? Where you talk about it being cheap. And so the way, one way to think about it is the Falcons paid about $5 million last year with the hope of getting a thousand yard season from Todd Gurley. He delivered about 670 something yards of that. So you got about 60, 8% 8% of the production that we paid for. So from that perspective, you got about $3.4 million return on that investment. And I think the chances of you being able to keep Todd Gurley and pay him that amount of money or less this year is, is very, very low. I mentioned this with Alan Sterk when he came on the podcast back in February, when we did our free agent Tinder game, talking about which free agents would stay or go or which ones that we would swipe left or right on. And, you know, I said this then that I think given the, expectation I have that Tiger is not going to take a, a cent less than what he made last year. You know, he could be in a similar boat as what Devonte Freeman was a year ago, where he remained unsigned throughout the entire off season and didn't get picked up until training camp uh, be, because, you know, he was basically like, I'm worth X and you need to pay me X and I'm going to turn down contracts until someone pays me, you know, what I think I'm worth. And I could see Ty Gurley making that exact same decision and wound up, you know, spending a lot of time, on the open market because I just don't see that many teams, you know, busting down his door to, to pay him $5 million or more this year. So I think the main difference is that I think the chances of you being able to sign someone like a Jamal Williams to a one year, 3.4, $3.5 million deal is significantly higher. And so you're not really getting basically the point I'm trying to make is you're not really getting a significant difference in, in terms of the player, but you're just spending cheaper amount of money on it. So our next question comes from Richard J. He says, saw, that Tooney wasn't tagged, so Fontenot needs to pounce, and it will solidify a long-term, much-needed end of the revolving door at left guard. No, you wanted him, and I believe it can be a significant bolster to the run game that's lacked the last three years. Thoughts on a legit chance to get Joe Tooney now? Well, in the words of Journey, Richard, don't stop believing. Um, but no, I do not. I do not have high expectations that the Falcons will land Joe Tooney, but look, there's always a chance, right? You know, we live in a multiverse where there's infinite, you know, possibilities out there. There's certainly a dimension where the Falcons do sign Joe Tooney. I just don't think we're probably living in that, but again, don't stop believing. So there you guys have it. Appreciate you for tuning in for another episode of the lockdown Falcons podcast. We'll be back with more content as we get geared up for free agency. That's coming in the next couple of days. It's going to be a very interesting and busy uh, set of days in the coming days. Uh, for the NFL. Again, as I mentioned previously, I don't know how busy it's going to be for the Falcons, although they do have some moves that they will have to make. And we will certainly talk about them on the podcast over the next couple of days as they make those moves. And I do expect them to sign at least a couple of guys this week, but I don't know if it's going to be the big sexy signings like the Joe Toonies of the world uh, that we're all hoping for. But look again, don't stop believing guys. So appreciate it. If you have any feedback that you want to provide on future content of the show, anything I said on today's episode or anything I've said on past episodes, of course you can hit me up on Twitter at Lockdown Falcons, on Facebook at Lockdown Falcons, or you can be like Richard and Joshua and send an email to lockdownfalcons at mail.com. Appreciate it guys. Until then.